This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. To receive a free copy of Bob Buford's classic book, Halftime, moving from success to significance, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead. All right. Today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, I'm really excited to have on Brian Holmes. Brian, welcome to the podcast. It is awesome to be with you, John. And we met through a great mutual friend, uh, Dean Showalter. And if, if you guys don't know Dean, you got to reach out and just connect with Dean because he's just one awesome dude, isn't he, Brian? He is the sweetest, most incredible, most genuine person I think I might know on the planet. He is brilliant. So, Dean, I know you're listening, and you know what? Those are all sincere affirmations, my friend. You're awesome. And, you know, as, you know, Dean and I were talking, he's like, hey, you know what, John? There's somebody you just, you have to have on the podcast. And as you started sharing with me, Brian, a little bit about your background, right? I know, uh, here's a little bit on, on the bio side, right? I know you founded and president of Strategic Influencers. You have an amazing podcast, the Strategic Leader Podcast. Uh, but you started out, and we're going to get into some of this, though. You started out in ministry, and then you got into being an entrepreneur, and then you got into a business. And now you, your whole focus, like your career, has been around personal and leadership development space. And right now, man, you are just doing incredible work teaching, training, equipping, and empowering leaders to really, you know, bring that ministry work that we're called to do, but in the marketplace. And... Um, you know, you, you've written some incredible books, right? The Ties That Bind and The Four Cornerstones of Strategic Living. And, you know, what we're always trying to do here on the podcast, Brian, is just connect everybody in our audience to just some incredible people, incredible resources, incredible teaching. And so I would just encourage everybody out there to really tuck in and get to know Brian. It's Brian Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S.com. And you guys will absolutely be, be edified with that. And so, Brian, thank you for, for taking the time today and being here. John, it's an honor to come on and serve your audience and share uh, some of our experience and our story. And uh, my gosh, man, I'm just glad to get to know you. Well, thank you. And, and vice versa. And, and uh, um, Brian is a pilot. He's flown some pretty awesome airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we were sitting here like, you know what, we got to start it. We got to hit record and get into the podcast because two pilot guys comparing notes. We were, well, we were geeking was, out pretty bad. Yo, Brian, it's been a half hour. So we were sitting here talking about <laughs> life and piloting for the last half hour, guys. We finally had to hit record. So anyway, you know, so you have gone through just uh, some really interesting life experiences that have led to you to your passions that you're following today. And, you know, what, what, you know, what are some of those parts of those journeys that really stands out to you, Brian? Well, you know, I was born in a really great home, John. I was very, I don't have this tragic story of a horrible home life. Uh, my mom and dad were hard workers. They provided us a great sanctuary to, to kind of be raised in. And uh, I was raised in a very religious home. Uh, and, you know, with, with that in mind, I guess you would say I was a church kid all my life because quite honestly, all I ever really knew was a Christian environment, a Christian worldview. And, and I was taught that from the time I was old enough to be drug into a Sunday school class. And I, I'm so grateful for that heritage and that upbringing uh, that the challenge for me was that uh, at a very young age, I was faced with quite a crisis. Uh, the, the theological, doctrinal, God-centric 
focus that I had been born with and grown, uh, grown up with was just faced with this crazy challenge because I experienced personal trauma, a very deep, deep thing that we'll talk more about a little bit later early on. And so I had to, I guess a conflict was created inside of me that I had to walk out. And I continued, of course, living a life that was certainly strong uh, in my faith. And when I was a very young man, I got involved in ministry. In fact, I was on the platform of a church playing an instrument at 11 years old. Uh, and then, you know, was always involved in music, always involved in praise and worship, always involved in some sort of choir or leadership. Yeah. And uh, 15, 16 years old, I began to speak publicly, not only in my local church, but outside of my local church some. And that, you know, kind of led to this destiny type thing we talk about where I began recognizing, hey, I'm supposed to be training, developing and helping others to find what it is that they're here to do. I wouldn't have described it that way as a 15-year-old. Uh, looking back on it, I recognized it was just my, my long-term God-given assignment in this world kind of pulling on me. Uh, that led me into uh, eventually into a staff position of a local church here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area after I was married to my beautiful wife, Sabrina. And uh, we served on staff there for about 13, 14 years, at which time the senior leadership of that church sent us out to plant another church uh, far on the other side of the Metroplex here in Dallas-Fort Worth. And then we served as senior pastors for, uh, gosh, I guess, 12, 13 years there as well. So you spent 25, almost 25 years in ministry. Oh, uh, it's 27 total. Now, twenty about 24, 25 on staff of some type of uh, a ministry entity. Now, during those years as well, I was involved in other nonprofit ministries uh, in leadership positions, as well as, I think I mentioned to you earlier before we pushed record, that I've been traveling since I was 25, 26 years old, some 70 to 90 days a year, speaking at conferences, leadership retreats, doing personal development, leadership development, mostly in the, the church context, but also in the business context as well. And what, what now, you transitioned though, uh, you know, from kind of that pastoral area, right? Leading a church and, you, you know, you just really felt, you know, God was putting a calling on your life to kind of do something different with one of the, you know, some of the skills and talents and gifts that you had. What was that, Brian? Well, I would have to go back a little ways and say that I've always had an entrepreneurial um, bug, I suppose. I've always had some sort of side business, always been really keen on strategic planning and helping organizations to address certain issues they may have. I, for years, I did church consulting, and I also did some business consulting because for whatever reason, one of my gifts was to be able to go in and see things others couldn't see and help them to refine and to adjust and and really take things to the next level. So, that's always been there. But the way I was raised, when you have a quote-unquote call to ministry, that automatically means it's going to be done within the confines of some type of a pulpit uh, or vocational job title within the local church. And, uh, and I'm not yeah, saying that's... Or like a parachurch, a 501c3, sure. right? That's kind of how we think about a lot of times ministry. Yeah. And, and I tell you, man, the last five or six or seven years, God's really begun to challenge me on that. And I've recognized there's this thing called convergence. And, and I'll explain what that is. Basically, it's this. I, I was raised that you were either in ministry or you had a secular job. 
And so we've always had this very strong distinction within the religious sector that there is a major separation between what is sacred and what is secular. And I think, I really do, I've come to believe that that is a, uh, a detrimental mindset because at the end of the day, if we're going to be salt and light, if we're going to administer influence, if we're going to do good in the world, if we're going to actually change lives, influence people, and, and, and my lingo, really show what the kingdom of God looks like here while we're here, then we have to take our gifts, our talents, our skills, our abilities, and yes, our callings into some of these theaters such as, you know, government and family and and the arts and entertainment and sports and and business especially and, and the financial world and all these places because it's those arenas that really need godly leadership and godly influence. So yeah, well, con- think about it from God's perspective, right, Brian? Do you think he looks down on all these areas of influence you just talked about and thinks about things as secular or sacred? No. <laughs> of course not. No, it's all his kingdom, but that is something artificial that we have – yeah. created. And I think that actually the forces against, you know, building God's kingdom here on earth have, you know, uh, built that wall brick by brick in our culture. Yeah. Well, one of our, our mutual uh, friends, uh, Lance Walnow, I believe you've had him on your program before. Lance does a lot of great teaching around this concept. At the end of the day, here's, here's what I know. We have, and by we, I mean Christians, have essentially abdicated our place our res- of responsibility and in doing so, we have vacated these positions of influence in all these various sectors, and we've come over to what we would call the religious sector or religious mountain, if you will, and we've kind of camped out there while all these other areas have just gone to hell in a handbasket. And my, my theory is, is that we're supposed to be out there having influence and exercising leadership and really dominating uh, the world philosophy, whereas most of us have been kind of in hiding, maybe isolation a bit. And so I, I guess now my passion has become, I want to, much as you do, honestly, John, I want to help individuals receive personal healing. I want to help them figure out who they are and why they're here, really who they are and why they're here. I, I want to I help to develop them both personally and professionally and within their skill sets and their respective callings. And then Maybe most importantly, I want to help activate them and, and turn the, the on switch on and launch them into these places of influence and cheerlead them all the way to the top because that's where we need to be exercising our godly influence. Well, I love those words, activate and launch, right? Those action words. And it, you yeah. know, it, it makes me think about, you know, back when I was flying F-14s and we would, there's so much work that goes into preparing that fighter jet to get up to the catapult and to lock into what we call the the shuttle and Mm. go through our final checks and bring those engines to full power before we're ready to launch. And I know, you know, some of those things that allow us to launch successfully, those are some of the things you've written about in your book, The Four Cornerstones for Strategic Living. And I'd love Mm. for you to share some of those cornerstones, Brian, because I think some of these are really key things to, to have in place so that when we feel activated, we can launch. And that is, you know, our, our theme this year is to really help people take that next small step forward into what they've been called to be doing. Well, thanks for allowing me to do that, actually. Uh, this this Four Cornerstones framework is something that uh, I've probably been stumbling around for 
15 years, but only in the last four or five years as I've been in my own season of transition and movement, have I sort of brought that into focus. And now I see in my own life where there is this cycle of progress. And it looks like this. It looks like personal healing. That's cornerstone number one. Number two is personal discovery. Number three is personal development. And number four is personal deployment. And, and that's a word I'm sure you're very familiar with yeah. uh, from your background. And the, the thing here is, is that these are done in a specific order. And I'll, I'll talk some about that if you'd like. But, you know, it begins with personal healing. And I use the word healing quite literally. Uh, you know, I mentioned a while ago that when I was very young, I was in a wonderful Christian home, but uh, we, we had people in our home all the time. And by that, I mean, my mom, and my dad were mentors in a lot of people's lives. And we, we had people in that were struggling. They'd come live with us for a week, two weeks, a month, two months. And, and my mom, who was a precious mother in the Lord, so to speak, she would pour into people's lives. And one of the people that stayed with us frequently uh, molested me, uh, abused me, and, and introduced me to things at 11 years old that a, a young boy should not be introduced to. Mm. Uh, it was a woman that I that really was eight years old. She was 19 years old at the time. And uh, her boyfriend at the time, she had, the two of them introduced me to pornography. And it was just a, it was a messy deal. Now, being raised in a very strong religious culture, and when I say strong, I'm talking about very legalistic, in fact, uh, we didn't talk about it. No one ever knew about that incident. No one. Uh, because the only thing that I could do was stuff it away because to to confess it was to put the blame on me. To bring it to the light was to call my own salvation and my my own worthiness into question, all that sort of thing. It, it's hard to explain, but believe me, it was, it was, first of all, an 11-year-old doesn't have the capacity to even know how to process what happened. And, sure, and, and, I, and I would guess that there's a just a tremendous amount of shame and guilt. And as you oh, gosh, that in, that changes... Man, who you are, your identity, how you Everything think about things, right? Changed the trajectory of my life. And I mean, quite literally, I, I became a very angry child because I was stuffing away these emotions that should have been being processed through. Uh, and, you know, I, I obviously, from the time I was 11 years old, began to deal with sexual addiction and, and all kinds of issues there. I brought all that into my teenage years, to my high school years. Uh, I had a lot of struggles in those areas. Uh, unfortunately, I brought all of that baggage and all of that pain and all of that unresolved stuff into my marriage, uh, which was incredibly unfortunate. And I loved my wife. I, I knew she was the one that God had designed for me, but I didn't have the capacity because of my own woundedness to even know how to treat her. Hmm. And so the first 10, 11 years of our marriage were absolutely difficult to say the least. Uh, one of the things that I always needed but didn't really get was, uh, hardcore affirmation and approval from my dad. It wasn't that he didn't want to give it to me. He really didn't know how because he didn't have that kind of relationship with his own father. Mm -hmm. But uh, that plays into the story because in 1999, now that's about, uh, I guess it's about 10 years after we got married and about 21 years after uh, this incident happened originally at 11 years old. But in 1999, I got a phone call at 8.30 a.m. on a Monday morning, my mom on the other end of the line, crying, weeping. She had found my dad dead in the house. Mm. He had dropped dead of a heart attack, and he was 64 years old, and it was devastating to all of us, but as, as we walked that out, it really became 
the tipping point for me because what I have to tell you is those 11 years leading up to that point in my marriage had become crisis. We had two very small children, but I was a red hot mess. My life was a mess. I had addictions. I had behavioral patterns. I had major failures that were going on in my life. So the guilt and the shame and the the low self-esteem was piling on. And you were also in ministry at this point too, right? I was going to say, man, keep this in mind. All of those years, I'm working for the Lord. (laughs) And you're telling people what to do and how to do it. And in your own life, you have this constant struggle and conflict. And and this is going to sound a little bit self-serving. And I want you to think about this though. I will tell you that my heart for the Lord and for doing what he was, he had created me to do was very legit. It was real. It was authentic. So it was like, it was like this. It wasn't that I was being a hypocrite with my lifestyle. It was like I was trapped in a prison while trying to do what I was really supposed to be doing. Uh, I would stand up in the pulpit, preach, teach, uh, speak, you know, I would lead worship. I do these things. And in those moments I was, I was in the zone and I don't mean like a fake zone. I was, I was in the, the dead center of what God had created me to do, yet I would step out of that moment and be living in such total conflict and so much pain, so much self-hatred. And that just began to increase more and more. And when my dad died suddenly and unexpectedly, it really pushed me over the edge. 1999, the, the remainder of that year from March 1st when he passed all the way through the end of that year, several times, John, I contemplated suicide. And I mean, I'm not saying that for the sake of effect. I'm telling you, I planned it. I thought it through. I had arranged my schedule to where I could do it, where it wouldn't be in front of the kids or or when they were going to be around or whatever the case may be. And I never could, thankfully, I know God spared me in some way because uh, I never could bring myself to follow through on that. In 2000, God led my wife and I both uh, to a non-church, quote-unquote, here's that word, secular program (laughs) that uh, had been written by Dr. Phil McGraw, the Dr. Phil, and his father, Dr. Joe McGraw. And we were uh, introduced to the program, went to that, and to make a long story very short, let's just say that God met me not in church (laughs) and honestly turned me upside down inside out and my heart was wrenched i i the brokenness began to be healed the addictions began to be just whittled away and everything changed that was one of the biggest turning points in my life from that time i can tell you i've recognized that if you're ever going to be great you have to deal with those issues that are unresolved in your life because if not you're going to hit a personal crisis a personal tragedy or or at best a really hard ceiling in how far you can go. And then we have so many examples of this throughout history, even recent history, great athletes, great sports stars, great uh, entertainers that whose lives are snuffed short because they, they never have the opportunity for whatever the reason to deal with those inner pains, those inner struggles. Well, you know, and you know, stepping into that greatness, right? I always think about, you know, Ephesians 2.10, as I was, you know, recovering and, and accepting this notion, but even with all these things that we've all gone through, right, that we're Christ's perfect workmanship, and there's, yeah, and right, and there's tasks beforehand that he's prepared for us, and seeing all of these experiences and healing from them so we can learn from them versus being connected to them emotionally, 
which is definitely a process, but these are points of destiny that prepares us, right? This conversation that we're having right now, I know for a fact, there's somebody listening that, that this is, they're so thankful that you took the time and are being vulnerable to share this because this is what they need to hear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I'm, what's coming to mind, Brian, I'd love for you to share is, you know, what does it look like to come to grips with some of these things and really start to heal? Because when you were at Dr. Phil's program, clearly something shifted, something started to break loose as you, as you kind of moved through something that's been, you've been stuck in for such a long time. Yeah, well, people, I heard someone say this a long time ago, people don't change until the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain of the change. Mm-hmm. And so, here's how this works. There is so much unresolved conflict, pain, guilt, shame, uh, and I will tell you just ridiculous beliefs that have been formed in people's minds and hearts about their own value, their own worth, as a result of what they've been through. But those things have been, and I'll use one of my fancy words here, concretized. They've been set in stone, so much so that when a person believes a lie, John, it's truth to them. Yes. When a person sells, gives themselves over to a truth, even if that truth is an untruth, it becomes the guiding force for their decisions, their choices, their, their, their trajectory in life, all of that. And so, at some point, one has to be willing to come face-to-face with the reality of one, maybe what happened, maybe the loss they experienced as a child, maybe it was a their mother and father divorcing tragically and it was an ugly thing and it really caused great pain. Maybe it was rejection by a father or a mother. I mean, the the list goes on. Maybe it was like me, sexual abuse. Who knows what the thing was, but in any case, it, it interferes with destiny. It interferes with God's selected path for our life and it interjects untruth in the mix. And the longer we contemplate the untruth, the more true it becomes to us. And so, at some point, we have to get miserable enough. And the pain of remaining the same has to be uh, strong enough that we are willing to go deal with the pain we never dealt with when the original thing happened. And so, that's kind of what happened with me. When I went to Dr. Phil's deal, I was given the opportunity to to just share with a, by the way, a virtual stranger. I'd only met it the day before. And we kind of paired off and we had done this exercise about being a victim and just nonchalantly, like I'm talking to you right now, I said, yeah, there was this one time when I was about 11 years old when this happened to me and I described what happened. And John, when the words came out of my mouth, it was the first person I'd ever told what happened. And at that point, 22 years of all of this pain and, and anger and all this stuff was bent up, pent up in there. And when the words came out of my mouth, it was like a dam burst because there was so much emotion there. I literally crumpled in the floor, and I'm six foot three, 235 pounds, and I crumpled into the floor like a sack of, of wet noodles. And I was there for I don't know how long, sobbing, crying, curled up like a baby because I had to allow myself permission to be in pain for a minute or for a while, maybe for a few weeks, to process through and get on the other side of what really happened. And, and that's one of the, the keys is a person really has to come to a point where enough is enough. 
What I can tell you about the pain of dealing with the personal tragedy or the personal loss or whatever that was, once you go there, that pain is temporary. The pain of remaining the same as long as you choose to, it's with you forever. But once you concede, I'm not going to live like this anymore. I'm going to go there, deal with this pain, and walk through this healing process. That pain subsides, and healing does take place, and then you can move beyond. And I'll tell you this, you can't really see what's possible in your life until you get beyond that pain point. What do you think the reason is, Brian, right? Actually confessing this to somebody else, right? That's Well, we can talk about scripturally where this comes from, this healing process. And I don't know if this is especially for men, I guess that's my context, but what makes that so hard for us? Well, one of the things that that uh, we grapple with is shame, guilt, our need for approval, our need for others to, to think we're okay, uh, to like us. I mean, you think about social media today and how ridiculously absurd it is that we, we live in this pseudo world where everything we do on Facebook, Twitter, and everywhere else is in some narcissistic way to get people to like what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just this pseudo world we've created. And so there is this thing where we don't want to, to project our vulnerability or to project, hey, I'm not perfect. That's one of the issues. But the other thing is this. Uh, there, <laughs> if you believe in a God, and I certainly do, then you have to also believe in what the scripture calls the enemy of our soul. And, you know, I I don't believe the devil's job is to get us to go to hell. I believe the devil's job is to keep us from engaging and being activated in our God-given purpose here on, on earth. If he can keep us paralyzed, off track, disengaged, then we're not going to have the influence we're supposed to have and make the difference we were supposed to make. And therefore he wins. And so some of this is just a mind game that's constantly playing itself out. You know, uh, there are scriptures that come to my mind. One is that uh, Paul said, you know, I want you to be healthy and prosperous and I want you to have an, the incredible life of your dreams, my, my translation. Uh, but you're only going to have that to the proportion that your soul prospers. Well, what is the soul? You know, the soul is, is the mind, the will, the emotions, it's the memories, it's the wounds, it's the hurts, it's the beliefs, it's all that stuff. And so uh, Christians have done a great job talking about salvation and spiritual transformation. We don't do such a great job talking about real life and what's really going on in people's hearts and minds. And so we need to go there. Another thing that comes to mind in scripture that comes to mind is this, is that uh, Satan, the Bible says, is the ruler of the darkness. For 22 years, John, I chose out of shame, guilt, afraid of what people were going to think, whatever, but I chose to keep that incident, that memory, that thing stuffed away. I I hid it. And when you hide something, you hide it out of sight, i.e. you hide it in darkness. In doing so, we literally are giving uh, Satan the legal right to dominate that space in our head. We're giving him control, essentially, to continue to project his will in our future. And so by bringing something out of the dark or out of hiding and putting it on the table, confessing it, as you mentioned a moment ago, it's really the first step of taking the power back, taking, your, taking control back of, look, I, I'm going to control this conversation. I'm going to control this dialogue. I'm going to control what happens. And I don't mean we become control freaks, but 
we're taking it away from the enemy of our soul and putting it back in the hands of one ourselves and also a God that loves us because we're his kids, you know? Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's some of the stuff that I think about when I, when we talk about that. Well, you know, I love what you said, you know, about bringing this into the light because, you know, in James five sixteen, you know, this is in the NIV. Uh, this has always struck me. Uh, you know, it says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. So that, you know, whenever there's a, so that I always take notice, right. It's like a dependent event. It's it so that you may be healed. Yep. And in the Amplified Bible, which I, I, I like this too, it's the same verse, but it says, confess to one another, therefore your faults, your slips, your false steps, your offenses, your sins, you know, anything that, you know, these lies that, that we're starting to get awareness, right? Pray also for one, one another that you may be healed and restored to a spiritual tone of mind and heart, right? We want to be able to transform our minds. Yeah, and what I would share with people out there, as you can hear as it went through Brian, and I could share some of my stories, but having those conversations with other people, and the person you were talking to, I don't even know if they were a believer, but you know what? God used that as you shared this out loud. Now it's in the light. Now we can yep. deal with it. Now we can really start digging into what those lies were, because then we can go through a process and say, okay, those lies, what, what it does in our brain it colors, you know, how we think about situations. Those, how we think um, determines how we feel. Those feelings then determine the actions that we take, and repeated actions create habits. And if we have these lives that are running in our brain, these filters, these, these, this identity about our, ourselves that we've accepted, even though it's false, we are not going to be able to step into that greatness that God created us into. So that I, I can see why you put healing in front of self-awareness. As you said, you intentionally kind of went through these, these steps. Cause I think this is the first place to really start to, um, you know, get replace those lies with the truth. Um, Let me mention something about the fault thing in that scripture. You mentioned, this is a metaphor that I, I have studied out for a while now, you know, confess your faults. We, we often think in terms of that being mistakes we've made mm. or some flaw in us, but that word fault is actually a geological term. And uh, I don't live on the West coast. And I, I pray that God never calls me out there. I'm just saying, uh, but uh <laughs> In the event that I did, you know, there's, there's a number of faults throughout various parts of the country, but there's a very famous one in California called the San Andreas Fault. And here's the thing about a fault in that sense. On the surface, everything looks right. On the surface, everything looks solid and you've got it together. It's, it's aesthetically pleasing. It, it looks like it's structurally sound, what have you. But a fault is something that is below the surface. It cannot be seen with a visible eye. Uh, it can't be seen uh, really, quite honestly, without some sort of geological x-ray tools or whatever they use to, to look at those things. But a fault within the heart of a man or a woman is that crack, that breach, that, that damage that's been done. But it's not what's seen on the outside. It's what's there on the inside. Here's the piece with that. That fault creates a real challenge because given the right pressure or the right circumstance or the right setting or the right temperature, then that thing moves, it shifts. And, and when it shifts, it creates what we call in the natural an earthquake. In, in this sense, it creates 
poor decision-making, catastrophic events, major meltdowns, whatever the case may be, when we don't deal with what's beneath the surface, we risk really causing ourselves, ourselves or those we love around us a great deal of pain because we didn't deal with the fault. So it's confess your faults one to another so that you can deal with these root issues and get them taken care of so that you eliminate or alleviate a lot of the risk on the surface. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, it makes total sense, right? Because some of these earthquakes that we, you know, you talked earlier about suicide, right? And there's more also than just physical death. You know, results of those oh, earthquakes can be, you know, relationship deaths, deaths of a business, deaths of, you know, things that are important in our life, right? Our own ability, right? We're dead to, you know, being effective in the lives of others. There's so many areas uh, that these faults when this earthquake happens. And here's the hope, though, that's in all this, right? By d- understanding what those are in our own lives and sharing those with people, um, you know, you know, to get forgiveness, right? We can repent and ask God, and to get healing, we tell yeah. and confess to others because, you know, what we cover, what we try to cover, God, God can uncover, yeah, right. And then what? We, and then what we um, intentionally uncover and confess, then God can cover with the blood of Jesus in in that in that very special relationship, which for me has been one of the most powerful healing things that's ever happened in my life. Absolutely, man. Well, as we as I've walked this out since nineteen or since two thousand, when I went through that program, uh, God began to really teach my wife and I a lot about the soul. I began to reflect back on the many years I'd been traveling in all kinds of churches all over the world. I've been to 18 countries and uh, I just, this is not a criticism. uh, And I, sometimes people take it that way. I don't mean it that way at all, but I began to think, you know, we, we have the most powerful, most incredible message in the world, the message of the gospel. It's the message of God sending a son in our place so that we could be redeemed back to God's original intention for mankind. We have that incredible story, but yet so many people have quote unquote accepted Christ and consider themselves saved, yet they're still living in a broken state. They're still living with unresolved, unhealed things in their life. And as I came forward out of 2000 and began, I was healing in the process of healing. The more I was healed, the more I realized, my gosh, so many people, I look into their faces from a platform, and I'm thinking divorce is rampant in the Christian ranks. Addictive behaviors, alcoholism, drug abuse, prescription drug abuse, depression. And I'm thinking, okay, what's wrong with this picture? And so I, this great passion welled up in me. We've we got to change this. We, we've got to begin to address the issues uh, that are personal healing related because people who are saved and know God should, of all people, be experiencing this powerful element we call personal healing. And I'll tell you, when it, you talk about personal discovery and, and development deployment, if you're discovering, quote unquote, who you are and you're looking through the prism or the eye glasses or the, the lens that you've been given out of brokenness, you're not even seeing yourself the way you, you I don't believe you can really have true personal discovery until you've experienced healing. I mean, you may discover some cool things you're able to do really well, but you're not going to really get to the heart of who you are and why you're here. 
That's why personal healing is first, then discovery, and then the engagement of learning and growth and development of skill sets and competencies to really give you the edge in the marketplace. And then, okay, pick your lane, go run hard in it, do well, influence people, change the world. And that's kind of how we framed our work these last five years. Man, that, that is so powerful, Brian. You know, as, you know, as we wrap up and we have a lot of, you know, people listening, right? What are just a couple of key thoughts you just like to leave people to just step forward into what we've been talking about? Each of us have a desire to take our life, our leadership, our influence, uh, you know, to the next level. Um, wherever you are, whatever it is you're going through, whatever you've dealt with in your life, I promise you there, there's a higher level. There's more. Uh, to, to be very straightforward with you, God wants you at a new level. And what was excellent on the previous level, whatever that was, is mediocre at best on the new level. And you must know that to go from the level you're on presently to the next level is going to require some test. It's going to require some graduating threshold. My experience is most times that that has to do with some level of healing because you really can't take the same stuff into the next level and expect to have a great result. So I'm just going to encourage your listeners, man, you know, wherever there is, go there in your heart, you know, pull the curtain back, allow God's light to shine in and, you know, ask him, ask God, hey, are you wanting me to deal with this now? Uh, I promise you, whatever he says is good and whatever he says is, is right. And if you're willing to take the journey and trust him with that, then you will find yourself at a whole different level here in just a, a short space of time and it will be so worth the journey. That's for sure. Well, Brian, thank you for sharing that. I, I think that was one of the most powerful and equipping and maybe transformative interviews we've had yet. And I really encourage people out there, um, you know, take what you, you know, this interview, what you heard Brian share and, and share this with somebody. I'll guarantee you everybody out there listening to this knows somebody who needs to hear right now what, what Brian just shared with us. And Brian, thank you so much for doing that. And if people want to connect to you and just continue this conversation, how do, how do they find you, get in touch with you? Absolutely, man. You know, we have a couple of great things going on, not the least of which is our website. That's kind of home base for all that we do, brianholmes.com. And that's B-R-I-A-N-H-O-L-M-E-S.com. And just everything we do, we have a Monday mastery video segment where we just give people little short nuggets of teaching and training and development and encouragement. Uh, we have, of course, our weekly podcast, the Strategic Leader Podcast. We encourage you to become a part of that and, and connect there. Uh, I lead a very high-level mastermind group. If someone is looking to really take that to the next level, we'd, we'd love to have a conversation with you about that. But uh, everything at brianholmes.com. Awesome. Well, guys, plug into Brian. And Brian, thank you so much for not only who you are, what you're sharing, just your vulnerability, your authenticity, and, and just putting something out there that's just such an important topic that I, you know what, if more people talked about this more often, um, it would be a different place. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing. I was actually, just to wrap up here, I was at a a thing on mental health that our church put on and the woman who was presenting had everybody raise their hand. Like who here has been hospitalized? And it was about half the people who here has broken a bone. And it was about a third of the people that raised their hand. And she said, who here has ever had a diagnosed mental illness? Cause a lot of those, you know, sometimes can come from these things we've talked about. 
And there was a couple hundred people in the audience, Brian, and only one person raised their hand. Mm. And what she shared from the stage is, you know, here's the problem that we have in our community because we are ashamed of it. There's fear, there's guilt, there's shame that is part of that. That according to the stats, it's 35 to 40% of the people have in this room have been diagnosed. So why is it we're, you know, this is something that we need to get better at talking about abuse, yes. suicide, depression, the things that have happened to our past, those fault lines that you were talking about. Yep. Because until we actually start having those conversations, um, that is what facilitates starting to change the narrative because we don't want to know who we are looking in the mirror. What we really want to connect with is who God sees when God looks at us. And we have to make yes. that shift. Yes. So, Brian, thank you for having this conversation. I truly appreciate it. John, it's a privilege and an honor. And uh, I just pray that everyone listening uh, decides today, take your life to the next level. Take your leadership to the next level. Whatever it takes, I promise you this, it's worth it. Couldn't agree more. Well said. Thank you, my friend. You are awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and a link to the show notes for this episode. This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. In 1994, Bob Buford penned the book Halftime, moving from success to significance. And in the more than 20 years since then, more than three quarters of a million copies have been sold. It's touched baby boomers in the 90s, and it's now touching the lives of both Gen Xers who are in that midlife season asking, is this all there is, as well as baby boomers who are searching for significance in retirement. To get a free copy of the book, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. And after you read it, if you have any questions, you can have a no obligation one hour of halftime coaching. Eternalleadership.com slash halftime. You can't beat getting a free bestseller. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. <laughs>